All right. Well, we are looking this morning at some of the most unpopular words in the New Testament, uh, really for three reasons. Uh, for one, they're difficult words to understand, even if you come to them wanting to understand them. And then secondly, when we do understand them, a lot of us don't like what they mean. And then third, there are all kinds of voices in the world that have tried to overturn everything that these words say. We're looking today at Paul's words, I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. We'll look at that verse, the one verse before it, and the three verses after it today. And I want to say from the beginning, these words can be understood and they are good because we serve a good God who is good to his people. Before we get into what the words mean, though, I need to spend some time in the whole passage. Uh, if you're just joining us, last week we looked at this same passage, but the verses before. And the reason we're doing that is that some of the conversations I've had and some of the things that have happened in our Bible studies have made it pretty clear. A lot of people are asking, hey, can we get some clarity on this? What does this chapter mean? And I don't mean pushback. I mean good-hearted. I would love to know what the Lord says in these verses. And I want to give you that clarity as best as I can. Uh, we're doing that carefully and slowly, and I'm doing that by splitting this second paragraph, verses 8 through 15, into two Sundays. Last week we looked at the first part, and this week at the second part. And before we get into the words, what I want to do is summarize the heart of the whole chapter. The entire chapter is printed in your worship guide, because often when we look at these words, we take them out of their context and we don't see why it is that Paul wants us to do these things. So I'm going to start you back at verse 1 and verse 2 when Paul says that he wants all of us to live prayer-filled and peaceful, quiet lives. This is a lifestyle he wants from a Christian. This is a biblical theme he is talking about here. Isaiah calls to a wayward people and he says, in returning, you will find rest. And in quiet, you will find your strength. And what he's talking about is that when our restless spirits turn from pride and from being ruled by our desires and the frustration of never getting what we want and the frustration of the world not being the way that it's supposed to be and certainly not being the way that I want it, when we turn from that restlessness, and hear Jesus' words, come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest, uh, he gives to us a peace in our spirits, uh, a heart that is at peace with God and no longer at enmity with him, and a heart that is at peace with how he is running the world, even though it's different from how I would run the world. A heart that can look at the good things that God calls good and say, I don't like all those things, but God made them good, so they're good. And a heart that can look at the bad things in our lives and say, okay, that was bad, and God said that was bad, but the Lord will use it for my good. And so I am at peace with my lot in life, and I am at peace with how the Lord is running the world. From that spirit, 1 Peter calls that a quiet, gentle spirit. He calls it from all ladies. Paul calls that kind of spirit from everyone here when he says in verse 2 that we may lead a peaceful, quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So he's essentially saying that that peace-filled spirit needs to come out in our lifestyle. And he's going to 
unpack what that looks like in the rest of those words. So before I go on, what I want to do is call you to that Prince of Peace who can give you a peaceful spirit. Uh, Many of us can say, I live a, a restless life. I am seeking things that I can't get and I can't find. And the thing your heart is seeking most of all, you may not realize, is a restored relationship with the God that made you. Your heart was made to burst in awe before him and feel communion and closeness with him. But since from the womb we have been sinning against this God, we've severed that relationship with him. And what he calls us to do is to come back to him through his son, Jesus Christ. He says, I have sent my son, Jesus, born of a woman, uh, he lived a perfect life, never sinned. He died once. He rose from the dead. And he did that to pay for the sins of all who would trust him and to guarantee eternal life for all who would trust him. So the open call I want to make before we get into even the rest of the text is, is come to this Jesus. If you want to trade restlessness for rest... If you want to trade enmity with God for friendship with God, if you want to trade coming judgment and death for eternal life and forgiveness, those things are open for you in in the open hand of Jesus Christ. And all you must do is come to him and receive them. So that's my call to you. Come to Jesus. If you're willing to do that, find me or Paul and tell us that, that choice you have made. And we want to talk to you about baptism, which is the next step, being baptized, lowered in water and raised from it to show that Jesus buried and and was raised from the dead. Uh, That's the call to come to Jesus. Many of you can say, when I came to Jesus, he did begin giving me a peace in my heart. I became more at peace with my lot in the world, and I became more at peace with God. And and our, our whole lives, the Christian life, is just more and more of that growing in that communion with God, in that peace with God. In that peace with one another. So back to Paul. He's telling us, live in that peace. Peaceful, quiet, dignified, godly, every day. And then he says in verses 3 and 4 that the reason God wants us to do that is that that actually helps bring people to Jesus Christ. More people out there get saved if the people in here can live a peaceful, quiet, godly lifestyle. So Us following these instructions actually helps our church grow. Now, some of us would think that the verse we're going to focus on, verse 12, if we really taught what that really said, how is our church going to grow if we keep saying stuff like that? And Jesus has been surprising us with those kind of things for for his whole 2,000 years since he was born. He stood up and said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And you could just imagine the disciples like, Jesus, if you don't stop telling people they have to eat you in order to be saved, you're never going to grow this movement. He just keeps surprising us with things we wouldn't expect him to say. But when we teach them plainly and clearly, the church grows. So us getting this right is an important part of our church growing. God desires all to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And so we want to get this peaceful lifestyle just right. He goes in in the next few verses to say there's only one God, only one way to be saved, and that is Paul's mission, his ministry. That is why he wants us to live these peace-filled lives. And so we start to ask the question, okay, what would it look like if my heart was at peace and if I wasn't always ruled by my desires and my pride? Well, He goes into that, and we talked at length about this last week. Uh, In verse 8, he says, For men, 
He says, men, if, if we weren't ruled by our desires and our pride, well, we would live holy lives because we wouldn't be seeking all the stuff that we want. And we wouldn't be fighting with each other and getting angry all the time because we're not ruled by the things that we want, right? It's okay when I don't get my way anymore. And because we're not ruled by desires and pride, we would be prayerful. And so a man that lives with a, a peaceful heart, a quiet spirit, he's full of prayer. He lifts up his hands in prayer to the Lord. He's got no pride. He's dependent on God. And those hands are holy, right? He's not fighting with other men. He's not given to anger. He's not given to immorality and unholiness in his lifestyle. He's calling men to live like that with quiet spirits. And then he looks to the ladies. Okay, what would it look like if I were a lady, right? You know, different temptations fall upon men and women differently. If, if a woman were to live with a quiet and gentle spirit, how would that show? And the first thing he said that we looked at last week was she wouldn't be given to extravagant or scandalous clothes, but she would be adorned with good works. That would be the noticeable thing when you saw her. She would be adorned with good works. And that brings us to today's words. We're continuing on with, for a peace-filled woman, what would it look like to live a peaceful, quiet, godly life? First Timothy chapter 2, we will read verses 12 through, oh, sorry, 11 through 15. The Lord says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but it was the woman who was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Those are the words of the Lord. And if you're a Christian, you need to know why they're in your Bible. What the Lord's doing through those words is the Spirit is helping us see many saved by making us into peace-filled, quiet-spirited Christians. But these words bring out the restlessness in the world, don't they? They bring out the restlessness in us. And they show in a lot of us that our hearts aren't really ready to say that the Lord runs the world better than we would run the world. But I'm calling you this morning to come to it with a trusting spirit, a restful spirit that looks to him. How would a woman live if she had a quiet spirit before God? How would she conduct herself in church? Well, the first thing he says is that she would be a good student of the Bible. And ladies, that's the first instruction it gives you. Be a good student of the Bible. This makes sense when you think about it. Here's a woman who was once at enmity with God, right? Didn't like what he was doing, didn't like his ways, and now has turned to him and says, this God has saved me. I love this God, right? I, I want to know everything I can know about him. And so if she has confidence that he has revealed himself in this word, this woman is going to say, I want to I want to know what this word says, right? I want to become a student of this word. And some of you can trace back in your life. You're like, yeah, that's, that's exactly what I did. I, I started studying the Bible because I wanted to know more about this God I love. That's how a peace-filled, quiet spirit expresses itself. A woman says, I want to know what that word says. There are two words that he says. He says, let a woman learn in two different ways. One is quietly and one is with all submissiveness. 
When he says quietly, he's picking up on the theme of the passage, right? The whole theme is a quiet spirit, right? And we saw that in verse 2. He has called everyone to live a quiet life. So this is not something especially called of women. It's just applying that to a woman, right? Learn, learn with a quiet spirit. That means in Sunday school class, that spirit that says, I want to learn this stuff, right? I want this teacher to show me what this book says. Not a contrarian spirit that can't wait to prove how wrong the teacher is, right? Uh, not a, a disinterested spirit that just says, oh, when, when can we leave and have donuts, right? No, a, no, a gentle spirit, a quiet spirit that says, this word is good, and, and I want to know what it says. So it's going to he says quiet. Uh, and then uh, he says, with all submissiveness, which I know is, is a buzzword, is even a trigger word for some, but it is essentially what we would call of any student. The idea is, whatever you're supposed to be doing in the class, do that, right? If it's a lecture class uh, and the teacher's going to lecture for 40 minutes and then there's going to be open questions after that and we're not expected to interrupt the teacher while he's lecturing, then listen and don't interrupt for 40 minutes and then ask questions after that, right? A submissive spirit. So, okay, I'll, I'll play by the rules in this room. If it's a discussion class and everybody is supposed to chime in and contribute, that spirit would say, Okay, I'm game. I'll chime in. I'll contribute. We'll have a discussion. All right, whatever the rules are in the class, playing by them and enjoying it. Uh, if it's a Bible study that has homework and we're expected to do homework together, that spirit would say, all right, I'm in. I'll do the homework. I'll do what we got to do. Right? A spirit that just says, teacher, what do you want us to do? And I'm happy to do it. That kind of spirit. And that's why I say, be, be a good student of the Bible. To be fair here, this is nothing that I don't also expect of every male student in my Sunday school class, right? Have a good spirit, be a good student of the Bible. The reason Paul needs to say it in this way, let a woman learn quietly and with all submissiveness, is that the norm in that day was not to teach spiritual things to women. In the Jewish synagogues, they didn't teach that stuff to the women. Uh, theology, holy things, uh, they were considered a, a guy's sport for the men. Uh, and Paul is turning that on its head, just taking the flat side of a wrench to it and saying, no, no, let a woman learn. One of the Jewish rabbis had a really famous clip. He said, better to burn the Torah than to teach it to a woman. And Paul's just taking the flat side of a wrench to that kind of idea and says, no, ladies, this stuff is for you. So part of what he's trying to do is overturn anything that may be left in your heart that may say that theology stuff, that Bible stuff, it's for the guys, it's not for me. No, Paul says, let a woman learn, like teach this stuff to the ladies and let a woman learn diligently with, with a spirit that says, I'll be a good student and I want to know this stuff. So that means ladies, uh, learn theology. It's for you. It's not just for guys. Theology books are marketed to men. I wish they weren't. I wish they were marketed to everybody. But ladies, they're for you. You can read them. Uh, Bible studies, thank God, are marketed to everybody. You can get into those. Uh, seminaries, like our seminary, Southern Seminary down in Louisville, is open to women. If you want to learn the riches of the Word of God, head there. You can take classes online. You can learn. We've got Bible studies here. We've got Sunday school class here. We preach the Word every Sunday. And ladies, I just want to make it clear as a bell, that stuff is for you. We love teaching the Word of God to men and women in our church. So learn it. Learn theology. 
keep that spirit in class that says, I'm here to learn. I love the Lord's word and I want to know what it says. Looking to that teacher saying, teacher, what's this word say? I want to know what this says. And following the lead in the classroom. If it's a discussion class, participate. If it's a lecture class, listen. Whatever the rules are in the class, follow that. And watch the Lord show you how good his word is. This would be true in Sunday school. It would be true when the word is preached on Sunday morning. It's true in Bible study. It's true if you have a mentor, if an older woman's taking you out and showing you the word, learn from her with quiet spirit and with all submissiveness. Let's put ourselves before the word of God and say, I'm going to learn that. Now imagine... You may not have to imagine, because it happens here all the time. Imagine coming into a church where the ladies have that kind of spirit, right? Imagine from the eyes of a lost person, they've heard every bad stereotype there is about us and how we treat women and how unhappy all of our women must be. And they walk in and they sit down in one of our pews and they look around and the woman next to them has a pen out and is just taking notes like, I want to get this stuff. And then next to her is a woman who's just paying attention with all she's got. Like, yes, this word is, is good. And then on Wednesday, the ladies come back and they're studying the scriptures together with an eagerness to hear what God says. And then they're quoting scriptures that they have memorized in the hallway. And it's very plain. These are, these are smart, intelligent women. They know the word because they love the word. Can you see how that would overthrow every misconception there is about us and show how good the Lord's word is. So that's the first instruction, ladies. How do you apply that quiet spirit to life? Be a good student of the Bible. What about teaching? Should she teach? When should she teach? What should she teach? Where should she teach? Well, let's look at the words again. We'll start in verse 12. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. When I first read those words, I hated them. I was about 19 years old. I was in college. Uh, had been taught, you know, the Bible my whole life, but mostly the stories, like a lot of kids are. Uh, and had been, you know, used to seeing women function as preachers. In the church I grew up in, uh, my youth director was a woman, and she left to be a preacher. Oh, that's what was normal to me. And I had these ideas in my head that, uh, well, like a lot of people today have, you know, is there really any real difference between a man and a woman? Aren't they really just basically the same thing? Haven't we made up all of these distinctions? And so I actually, at this point, was at the end of a, of a one-year phase where I refused to open the door for a woman because I didn't want to insult her and imply that she was too weak to open her own door, right? I wanted to honor women by letting them, oh, this is how messed up my head was. And here I am, away from my home church, reading the words of the Bible on my own for the first time, and I come across that, and I come across Ephesians 5, wives submit to your husbands, and I just didn't like it. It was the first time that the word said something that I didn't want to hear, 
And so for a few months, I wrestled with it. I sought out all of those arguments that are out there for why this doesn't mean what it really means, right? Everything that tries to overturn it. But I was so disappointed because none of the arguments worked and I wanted them to work so bad. And I wanted somebody to tell me this doesn't mean what it says. People tried, but nobody could do it effectively. And so there just came a day where I sat all by myself in my college dorm room. I had three roommates, but they were all out doing stuff. And I was sitting there with my Bible alone. And I just had to say, Lord, I don't like this, but you said it. And so it's good, and and I'll receive it. Because, well, what I didn't realize he was doing... uh, I thought he was just correcting my misunderstandings about the differences between men and women. He was doing that. And surprisingly, I got along better with women a whole lot more after that. Who would have thought? Um, I thought he was just doing that. But what he was really doing was saying, my son, I can run the world better than you can. Right? Right? And I'm looking up at him saying, well, Lord, if I was running the world, it wouldn't be like this. Right? And he's looking down saying, no, my son, I can do this better than you can. I say that because for many of us, we need to do the exact same thing. We got to say, Lord, you can run the world better than I can. Right? Whatever this says, it's good. And I'm going to receive it. So what does it say? Right? That's the clarity you're looking for. Well, he says two things. He teaches a truth. And then he tells ladies how to live in that truth. Here's the truth he's teaching. With the words about Adam and Eve, he is saying, God built men to teach and lead his people from his word. That's the point of verses 13 to 15. God built men to teach and lead his people from his word. He also gave women an incredible role in the salvation of the world. We'll get into that. And so for ladies, and even for men, if we're looking at that and saying, okay, that's true and good, and I receive that, what does that mean? It means let's not try to flip over God's good design, right? Let's not take God's good design and flip it upside down. So the truth is God built men to teach and lead his people. The way we would apply that is we will not flip that upside down, but we will receive that as good from the Lord. Let me walk through those in much more detail. We'll spend the rest of this morning just walking through those two statements in detail. Okay, verses 13 through 15 teach that doctrine, that truth, that from the beginning with God's design in Adam and Eve, God built Adam, he built men to teach and lead his people from his word. And Paul gives us three breadcrumbs taking us back to Genesis, like Hansel and Gretel style, taking us all the way back to the beginning to Genesis to say, look at the design from the beginning. This is how God had it from the beginning. With each of those three breadcrumbs, we got to fill out the story more. He doesn't tell us the whole story. We have to fill it out with what we know from the Genesis account for it to make sense. Most of us have gotten confused by these words because we're staring here and not filling it out with Genesis like he wants us to do. He begins with the order that they were created in verse 13. Uh, It says really simply, Adam was formed first and and then Eve. Uh, And he's saying two things there. One, the order that they were made matters, right? He made Adam for leadership, and, and he showed that by making Adam first. Also, filling out the story in Genesis, Eve was made after Adam, and she was made as, as a helper, right? So the testimony in Genesis is Adam made to lead and teach God's people, Eve made as a helper who was fit and suitable for him. That's the first part of it. 
Second part is a little harder to understand, and the third part's even harder to understand. Second, he says, he he appeals to to the fall, the moment we ate that forbidden fruit and fell into sin. And he says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, ladies, you may hear that and think, wait a minute, the reason I can't preach is because I'm easily deceived? Is that what he's he's saying? No, I'm convinced that is not what he's saying, because that's not his point. He says that second. First, he says, Adam was not the one deceived. That's his point. Now, why does that matter? Well, again, let's go back to the whole story. Fill it out. What happens? Adam gives that law. I'm sorry, the Lord gives that law Uh, You may eat of any of these trees in the garden. You may not eat of this one tree, right? He gives that law to Adam, evidently before Eve was even made. So the law was just given to Adam. Then he makes Eve, brings Eve to Adam. And in the next story, we see that they, they fall into sin, right? And it's Eve who transgresses first and then Adam. And then the Lord comes in the garden and he calls out, with a singular verb, where are you? Not where are the two of you, where are you? One, and one person answers, Adam. And then he says, have you, singular again, have you eaten of the tree of which I said you were committed not to eat? And then he asks another question, and it's Adam who must answer to the Lord. The Lord is holding Adam accountable first. Now, As Paul says here, Adam wasn't the one who sinned first. Why is God holding Adam accountable first if Adam is not the one who sinned first? And the answer is because Adam was in charge, and that's how leadership works. He was given the law, given it to teach and lead Eve with the law, and he failed to do so. Come to think of it, when when Eve was hearing these deceptive words from the snake— And she tries to quote God's law, and she misquotes God. And Adam doesn't step in and say, oh, honey, that's actually not what the Lord said. No, right? He fails to to teach and lead. And then she sees how good the fruit is and reaches out with her hand to take it. And he does not say, darling, no, the Lord said not to do this. Don't don't eat from this tree. He, He just stands there. He fails to lead. He fails to teach from God's word. And so since he has failed as head of the human race, it is him that God goes to first. This very writer, Paul, will say in another place in the book of Romans that all of us are dead in Adam's sin. And all of us sinned when Adam sinned, that sin entered the world through Adam's sin. Even though it was not Adam who sinned first. Because Adam is the head of the human race. That's the role that God gave him. So the dynamics of the fall story teach that Adam was responsible to teach and lead God's people. And he failed before Eve failed because he failed to teach and lead God's people. So that's what he means when he says it was not the man who was deceived, but it was the woman who was deceived. His point is that it was not Adam. We move on to the next verse, verse 15 how she is saved. These words can be very confusing, I will admit, yet she will be saved through childbearing, it says. I have known women who have read that and said, wait, I have to have children to be saved? Is that what that means? 
good news, I was not able to find one serious interpreter who thinks that that's what that means. So there are a few things people think it means, but no one takes that one seriously. Uh, two main views people have on this. I'll tell them both, and I'll tell you the one that I have. Uh, some people, especially uh, people in the Puritan era and kind of generations before us, uh, they believed that it meant that a holy and virtuous woman got some special protection when she was going through the trials of childbirth. Childbirth is scary in any era. 200 years ago, it was really scary because the odds that you were going to lose your life giving that child were higher than they are now. And so it was a word of comfort, they would say, to good and holy women, no, the Lord is saving you through that process. He will protect you. Uh, I do not think that is what it means. Uh, I think that he is still talking about Eve for two reasons, the grammar of the sentence and the way it meshes with the story. Look at verse 15, yet she will be saved, it says, right? And that singular she is consistent with the Greek. It's a singular pronoun in the Greek. So he is talking about one female still. And we can follow the same rules of grammar we would use in English. They work for this. Who must he be talking about? Who would be the antecedent of the pronoun? It would be Eve. He's still talking about Eve. Eve will be saved through childbearing. And that is actually consistent with the Genesis story. After the Lord talks to Adam, he talks to Eve, and after he talks to Eve, he talks to the serpent, and he tells the serpent, she's going to bear a child, and one of her descendants is going to crush you. That's the first messianic promise in the Bible, right? Jesus Christ is going to come as a descendant of Eve, and he is going to crush that serpent. So Eve, with faith in that, say, okay, someone is going to come, and he's going to save me from this mess. And my role in that is one day I'm going to bear a child that bears a child that bears a child, and eventually the Savior will come. And the way the story ends is Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived, and she bore a son. And she says, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Later, she has two more sons, and the third son winds up being the ancestor of Jesus. So women do not have to bear children to be saved. But Eve did have to bear a child for all of us. To be saved. Her role in the salvation of the world was to bear that child. Now, I think that's very important because, well, for one, it does not leave us hanging with she was deceived, the end, but it gives us hope. But it shows us something very important. Yes, God designed Adam to teach and lead his people, but he gave Eve a tremendous role in the salvation of mankind. I would go as far as to say that sin entered the world through Adam and salvation entered the world through Eve. He may be teaching and leading, but what she does is vital to the salvation of humanity. That, I believe, is why he has just told us in verse 10 that rather being, than being clothed with costly attire, women who profess godliness should be adorned with good works. Because he gives holy women of God a tremendous role in the salvation of the world. Many, many good works to do. So the traditional picture of Adam leading, teaching, doing all the work, and Eve doing nothing, it just doesn't square out with Genesis. Adam may have led and taught, but Eve is the one through whom salvation came. And ladies, the Lord has good works, big works for you to do in the kingdom as well. 
So there are the three references to Genesis and what they mean. They add up to mean that God built men to teach and lead his people. And he designed women to to help with that and do tremendous works for the salvation of mankind. And so, if a woman lives with a peace-filled, gentle spirit, loves the Lord, loves the things the Lord does, it makes sense that she is going to embrace God's design and say, I love that. The last thing she's going to want to do is flip over how God designed the world to work because she's at peace with this God now. And so when she sees holy men of God standing in pulpits proclaiming the word of God, she's just going to celebrate because, oh yeah, they're doing what God made them to do. When she sees a husband teach and lead his home from the word of God. She's going to celebrate that and love that. And I hear that so often in single ladies that say, I just want a husband who will lead me spiritually, right? I just want a pastor who will teach me and lead me in the word of God. That's what a peaceful spirit does in a woman of God. And so his instruction then in verse 12 is don't overturn it, right? Literally, it's I do not allow, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man Rather, she's to remain quiet. Now, let's mind what those particularly mean. What kind of teaching is he talking about? What is it that he wants us to do here in the church? First, you probably catch my meaning. When he says that she is to remain quiet, he's talking again about that quiet spirit, right? It's been the theme the whole time. Uh, Some translations will translate that she must remain silent. I do not think that's a helpful translation Uh, For several reasons. One is that Paul instructs women in Corinth to pray out loud in church and even give prophecy in certain ways. He wouldn't be instructing them to do that if they were supposed to be silent in church. That wouldn't work. Uh, And I think when you don't translate it the way that the same word was used the other two times in verse 2 and verse 10, you lose that continuity. So it's that quiet spirit that he's going after. With that quiet spirit, she refrains from two things. The first one is teaching, teaching men particularly. What's that mean? Well, when the apostles use the word teach, they are talking about authoritative Bible teaching. Any time that that word is used in in the New Testament, almost every time it's either Jesus or one of the apostles getting up before people and saying, here is what the Lord says with authority, like authoritative teaching of God's word. We would call that Bible teaching. That's what you expect of me every Sunday when I read and teach the Bible to you. That's what you expect of your Sunday school teachers and your Bible study leaders every time you gather. So for us, that's Bible study, Sunday school, and preaching. That's where we have authoritative Bible teaching. We see that spirit a few verses later. If you have your Bible open, scan down to chapter 4, verse 11, where Paul tells Timothy, command and teach these things. You sense the spirit of that? Like Paul's writing the spirit-inspired letter, the scriptural letter. And it's not just teach these things. It's command and teach these things because that word has an authority with it. We understand in this room that if I tell you what the book says, we got to do what the book says. You don't got to do whatever I tell you, but you got to do what the book says. And so my job is to tell you what that book says. My job is to command and teach these things. If you've got a Sunday school teacher, their job is to command and teach these things. 
And that word comes with that sense of authority. You can probably see how that is not the same thing as leading a safety seminar for the kids' ministry, right? Not the same thing. Not the same thing as teaching someone how to work the soundboard. We might call that teaching in our vernacular. The apostles would not have called that teaching. So in our church, the way we apply that particularly is when there is a Bible study, a Sunday school class, or preaching, and there are men in the room who are learning, then we limit those roles only to men. Any other roles, we leave open for ladies. In fact, if God designed Eve to be a helper and gave her a tremendous role in all of this, we need the ladies to help us with this. And that's why Titus 2 tells older women to teach what is good and mentor younger women. It tells all of us in Deuteronomy 6 to teach and train our children. So if you're a woman gifted in doctrinal teaching, we want to engage you in teaching younger women and in teaching our children. We need your help with that. There are also some forms of informal teaching that in the New Testament appear very open to women. Uh, This is a letter written to uh, Timothy leading a church in Ephesus. And in chapter 3, he will say, I'm writing so you will know how to conduct yourselves in the household of God. It's how to act in church. But we learn things from each other outside of church, don't we? So, So without taking a formal teaching role, you can still teach somebody. That happened in the book of Acts, actually. A man named Apollos, gifted teacher, got up and taught with authority. But he got baptism wrong. He didn't know that Jesus baptized. He thought just John baptized people. So he was teaching wrong. And this woman named Priscilla hears it. And so she and her husband go together. And it lists her first. Priscilla, together with her husband Aquila, went and talked to Apollos after and said, Brother, you got that wrong. Like, let us explain to you. Actually, Jesus baptized people. And they need to be baptized not with John's baptism, but in Jesus' name. Apollos hears that, receives correction from her, and goes on to teach the truth. So he learned something. He got corrected by by a woman who heard him preach. So this opens the door for informal teaching, informal correction from women. Ladies, if I get a doctrinal point wrong and you catch it, you can come find me and tell me about that. And if you're right, I better listen to you. If you're not right, I'm not going to listen to you. But if you're right, I better listen to you, right? This is the role that he gives us in these kind of things. So all it prohibits is formal teaching roles of Bible teaching when men are in the room. That's clearly what it prohibits. Anything else is open to ladies. What about the other words? Exercise authority over a man. Well, we can see the spirit of even Paul's words later, command and teach these things. Uh, Pastors have an authority that comes from from the word. Um, I don't have leave to tell you guys to do whatever I want you to do. Uh, All I can do is use this book to say this is what the Lord says and and we must do it. That's, That's how pastoral leadership works in its best forms. So I believe he is talking here about authoritative leadership from God's word. That's the theme, right? Adam taught and led from God's word. Timothy was to teach and lead from God's word. And so he's saying that is something God designed men to do in the church, to lead the church from God's word. There are other things that we might want to call leadership that I don't think Paul has in mind here. Administrative leadership, 
really important. Somebody has got to decide for our church suppers, when's it going to be taco night? When's it going to be lasagna night? And when is it just going to be a free-for-all, right? And somebody's got to make that sign-up sheet and just coordinate the whole thing. You, you don't need scriptural authority to do that, right? Somebody can just say, it's going to be taco night, and we're going to do that. Administrative leadership is needed. The stuff that Karen Melvin does in our office and that administrative leadership that she provides. Uh, I believe personally that musical leadership is open to ladies like Miriam and Deborah who led Israel in song. So he is not talking here about the choir director who says, okay, everybody, you cut that note off on the three. You need to wait until the one of the next measure to cut that off. That's not the kind of command and teach these things that Paul is talking about. And he's not talking about the kind of leadership that says, okay, this week is taco night and next month is going to be lasagna day. He's not talking about that kind of leadership. Uh, He's talking about authoritative leadership from God's word. So the way that's applied here in our church is that we limit the role of pastor to men, in part because the very next words in the scripture will outline the criteria for pastor, and being able to teach in this way is one thing pastors must do. They also must lead from the word and demonstrate that with their family lives. So we limit the role of pastor to men. Uh, We also limit committee chairs to men if there are men on the committee. Now, if it's a committee of all ladies, we'll let a lady chair that. If there's a man on the committee, we'll ask a man to chair that committee. Uh, And then Sunday school teaching when men are in the room, Bible study when men are in the room, and, and preaching when men are in the room. One thing that's probably important to say is that our deacons here at Calvary, uh, they do a lot of things, but there's nothing particularly that our deacons do that women are not allowed to do in the scripture. And so the way that I handle that here is I encourage our deacons, guys, involve your wives in, in your work. And uh, many of them do that very thing, right? Our deacons, they, they fill up the baptistry. Uh, they prepare the elements for the Lord's Supper. They call members and say, how are you doing? How can I pray for you? They give people rides to the hospital. They just serve and serve, and then they pray. And all those things are open up to women to do in the church. And so our guys are engaging their wives. Honey, why don't you go with me to the hospital? Why don't you sit with me while, while, we, while we call this person on the phone so they can be involved in that work there as well. So there's what the words mean. God built men to teach and lead his people from his word. We embrace that with all of our heart. We say that's good. His ways are good. And we love to see holy men of God get right up here and teach this word. What I'm going to do now is just have a time of prayer and ask the Lord to commit that truth to our heart. I hope clarity in that has been a blessing to you. We have many people to pray for. And so let's just pray and ask the Lord to help us with this.